the first episode in the series, Meet My Friends. No she kippy journeys alone. It's important to be surrounded by like-minded people who encourage you to journey the bohemian way. You're listening to the She Kippy Podcast. Friends call me the chic city girl with the hippie heart. Welcome to your ultimate guide to millennial adulting. Hi, I'm your host, CH. I'm joined by thought leaders, cultural innovators, and friends as they share their insights on journeying through work, life, and play the bohemian way. This is the Chic Hippie Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Chic Hippie Podcast. I'm your host, CH, the Chic City Girl with the Hippie Heart. So I'm so excited for you to meet my friend and our first guest, Jason Outlaw. That's right, ladies. Sometimes we can learn a little something from the guys. Jason truly embodies this idea of creating your own path. He is a graduate of the Harvard School of Dental Medicine and the owner of Vitro, a stained glass art company. Some may ask Jason, is it dentistry or stained glass? Well, he would say it's both. His craft allows him to expand his community focus and aesthetically enhance the lives of others. So keep listening as Jason Outlaw explains the importance of creating community his passion for this art form, and how he freely and unapologetically pursues his passions and interests. Hi, Jason. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. I want to start off by getting to know a little bit more about your art company, Vitro. Well, I first started it after I graduated from college. And I studied urban and regional planning and sociology as an undergraduate. And the biggest takeaway from my education was if you really want to see your community grow, you can't really wait for somebody else to come along and do that. You need to take initiative and do it on your own. And so around that time, I moved back from Chicago. I moved to Chicago from Champaign-Urbana. And a lot of my favorite institutions were closing. My favorite coffee shops, my favorite art stores, all of these places that I really loved. And I decided that I really wanted to use my art as a vehicle to help people to understand the importance of supporting local businesses. And granted, this was before Amazon had taken over. At that time, everybody was discussing Walmart. Oh, what do we do with Walmart taking over everything? Sam's Club. So this was a pre, this was a pre Amazon takeover. And so my art was going to be the vehicle for me to help stimulate the economy, to help people discuss local community development, and to use my art as a tool to do that. But why did you specifically target stained glass as that medium to do that? Why did you think that that would be a good medium to help you revive small business and encourage more shopping in communities? Stained glass is my art form. I can't do, I can't work in a medium that I don't understand. 
I actually took a class in stained glass at my high school, Morgan Park Academy, in the fall during my freshman year. And I've been doing stained glass ever since. During college, I took classes on stained glass. Um, there was a small place called Glass FX in Champaign-Urbana. And I, I kept making things and making things and learning from other people who were leaders in the field. And it sort of became my medium. So another thing that I noticed is if you go into a coffee shop, like an independent coffee shop, pretty much in any city, they'll have artists who come in and put art on the walls. But it's very rare to see people put art in the windows. So I realized that that's a huge opportunity to kind of expand into the areas that most coffee shops have no sort of art and seemed like a great opportunity for me to do that. So I'm a little bit curious because I know as an artist, sometimes you're attracted to a medium for a specific reason. Is there anything in particular that really attracted you to stained glass as a medium? So first of all, I, I wouldn't really classify classify myself as an artist. I'd say I'm more of a craftsman. And the thing that's appealing about stained glass is that you use a lot of different materials. So I use mirror, I use glass, I use wood, I use polymers and other plastics. There's a lot of different tools that you can use. I use laser cutters, sandblasters, more traditional cutting wheels, just this wide array of tools and it's very fragile but it's also very tough at the same time i know creating community is one of the major focuses of vitro so you explained how you wanted vitro to assist with kind of rebuilding small businesses or allowing for additional commerce in neighborhoods and local areas. But what is Vitro's larger commitment to creating and expanding community? So it's two-pronged. The first prong is with individuals. So a lot of people never had the benefit of going to art class. So I feel privileged to have gone to Clissold Elementary School on the south side of Chicago, where we had Miss Kampf. And she was the art teacher from when I was there in third grade all the way until when I graduated. And we explored all of these different mediums from paint to all across the board. And a lot of people don't have that experience. So we teach workshops periodically where people can come and make a stained glass mosaic from scratch from start to finish. And in the process, I love seeing that spark in people's eyes where they realize they can take an idea and translate it into reality. They can take something that's in their mind and abstract it into glass and then take it home with them and put it in the window. And years later, people will still come up to me and say like, oh, I still remember that stained glass class that I took with you. I didn't know that I had that sort of creativity inside of me. So that's the first aspect, helping people to understand that they can be creative. The second has to do with the urban planning slash economic indicator called the multiplier effect. So, you know, my community, the black community in the United States, when we get our paychecks, the money just goes. It goes to big corporations right away. It doesn't have the opportunity to circulate within the community. 
I wanted to use my art to help remind people that you build wealth, you create jobs, you create resilience by recirculating money. So example, if I have $100 and I give to you $50, you could go and spend that $50 in a corporation down the street. Who knows where their headquarters is? That money is going to be vacuumed out of the community. But if instead you take that $50 and you give it to a local business down the street and then exchange the money for a service with a local lawyer or a local beauty shop, and then the people at those two institutions, they decide, hey, now that I have this $25 and that $25, I'm going to recirculate it to somebody who is also running a business in the area. The wealth cascades throughout the community, and it allows us to create wealth, to create local wealth. And that isn't really an intuitive idea, but once you take a look at it from an economic perspective, it makes more sense. So ultimately, the art is one of those steps in keeping local money in the area and showing other people through pamphlets, through through other channels of information, hey, this is something that you can do in order to build wealth for the future of your community. So those are the two prongs. The multiplier effect, and helping people to remember that they are, in fact, creative. And now, currently, you reside in the Boston area, so you're still committed to doing that where you are as well? I'm committed to doing this across the country. So in the next few months, I'm going to have a show called Represent. And the show, Represent, it's going to be comprised of very, very local themes. So there will be maps that are local, quotes from people who are from the local community, graffiti of the name of the city in glass, all of these different things that are very local. So we'll start with Boston, but there will also be Chicago. I used to live in New York. There will also be a New York one. So that message can be communicated in a very highly personalized way that's related to that specific locale. How have you found the time really to watch Vitro foster and grow, given that you're starting a dental career? So why is watching this expand important to you and what steps are you taking to make sure that it can succeed? Well, so I've been doing this for 22 years now, stained glass. And stained glass came before dentistry, not the other way around. So the way I look at it is is how do I fit dentistry into the urban planning and stained glass work that I've been doing for more than a decade and a half. And so the key to me is being flexible enough to not not commit to full-time jobs that take away all of my free and flexible time. So what that means is, first of all, you have to be okay with being strange in the eyes of other people. You know, like most people will say, oh, why are you doing this other thing? Why don't you just go and focus? Like I had a, I had a professor who told me, you know, Jason, what you should do is go finish your degree, 
and become a dentist, become a specialist, uh, make a lot of money and go and help your community. And, you know, and I, I accepted the, I accepted the critique, but the reality is there's more than one way to make an impact. Most people are used to doing it in a, in the style of a nine to five where you show up and you get a paycheck and you get a task list of things that you're supposed to do for the day. And then you go home and then you do it all over again, week after week, after week, after week. If you're coming up with something new, you actually have to have time to think. You have to have time to, to test your ideas, to prototype them, to put them out there into the world so that you can get some feedback and see, okay, is, is my artistic vision lining up with what people aesthetically appreciate? You know, it, it takes time to come up with something new. And so what my career has been over the past few years has been carving out specific time to do creative work and carving out another set of time in order to do professional work. It's, it's very, very non-traditional, but there really isn't any way to do it in a traditional, professionally structured life in the nine to five realm. And, you know, to, to be honest, one of the things that I most appreciate, the, one of the reasons why I chose dentistry is it's one of those fields where you can be your own boss if you'd like. You can set your own schedule. And so anybody who is thinking about starting their own thing, you have to really think critically about how you're going to fit everything in, especially if you're at the point where you have kids or where you have bills that are coming in like i know i have a lot of bills from student loans that are that are pending but if you have a vision for something that you want to create carving out time to do so is the only way to do it and so the final aspect of that is i had to cut out a lot of things that most people use to to fill their free time so back in 2009 I had to decide whether or not I was going to stay on Facebook. Facebook was one of the first things to go. I haven't really logged in since 2009. And then Netflix. I, I can't really spend any time watching Netflix because it's either Netflix or coming up with new ideas for, for my business. TV. I, I watch a lot of YouTube videos in the background and read tons of articles every day on that's how I get new ideas and new innovations is from reading, but balancing things professionally and creatively has been very, very deliberate. And I had to choose a professional career that would allow me the time and space to be creative. So I'm hearing you say, cause I hear a lot of people say, it, if you're pursuing something, you can't really have a plan B. So the plan is staying glass. Well, the, the plan is dentistry and stained glass. I'm going to do both. Like it's not going to be one or the other. They can coexist. Because of the flexibility that you're putting in your schedule. So to give you an example for my residency, I only applied to two programs. And the reason why I applied to one of those programs, and I really hoped that I would get in was because it would allow me to have a full day off in the middle of the week. And instead of using my vacation days to take 
a week and a half trip to some island somewhere and sit in the sun, I strategically took off every Monday. So I had Monday and Tuesday off, and then I worked Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then every other Saturday, and then I'd have every other Saturday off, Sunday off, Monday, Tuesday off. And so that gave me time to actually have uninterrupted time to sit down and do creative things. Now, I could have easily have done a residency that actually paid me double. I could have gotten a residency that paid me double, but it would have been at the expense of having that absolutely necessary time off on Monday and Tuesday during business hours so that I could have meetings, so I can meet with my employees, so that I could translate some of these ideas into prototypes. And and so those little decisions really shaped my ability to balance this. And I'm not saying that I'm good at balancing it because I, there's more than I can handle, but without having the time and dedicated space and uninterrupted free time, none of this would be able to happen. There was also one other thing that you mentioned that I wanted to point out. You talked about leaving Facebook and unplugging. And I know you mentioned that you read a lot and that's where you get a lot of your ideas. But some people generate ideas through social media and through connecting that way. What is the significance for you of unplugging, getting away from social media? I I would frame it the first thing that comes to mind is reclaiming my time, reclaiming my time. You know, everybody has a finite amount of hours in the day. And I remember back when I was in grade school, I I used to spend three, four hours every day watching TV, watching, I'd have to watch Seinfeld and the Simpsons and Roseanne and Martin, like all of these shows. And I knew the, like, I knew those shows. I knew the characters. I knew all of that information, but all of that time that I was spending consuming, I was not able to produce. So the way I look at it is I can either be in one mode. I can be in consumption mode or production mode. I can't be in both modes at the same time. So if I'm constantly in consumption mode, I'm not going to be productive. Social media is a consumptive type of activity. And I I write in my journal pretty much every day, and it helps me to build a lot of awareness of about myself in general. But at one point I cataloged the number of hours that I spent consuming. And I realized that the lion's share of my free time was in consumption mode. So once I realized that back in 2009, I switched and I cut out all of the I don't want to say it was wasting my time, but it was time that was not able to be used to produce. There's a there's a guy named Stephen Pressfield who has a really great book called The War of Art. And one of the things that he said that really stuck with me is, you know, you get the muse when you sit down and get to work. So a lot of people, myself included, will wait for that burst of inspiration. And you know, well, days can go by, weeks can go by, and the muse hasn't hit them. But what I found after reading his book is if I sit down and I take a design that I'm working on, for instance, I'm working on a a design right now that's for the Chicago flag and the Washington, D.C. flag. 
I get more ideas by sitting down and doing the work, by cutting the glass, by using the laser cutter, by using Photoshop. I get ideas when I come up against problems. It's like, huh, how am I going to solve this problem right here? Hmm. It looks like the machine has a limitation right here. What are some other things that I can do? I consult my friends. I look at the internet. So I will, I will deliberately consume, but consume in a way that's going to help me get over the roadblocks that I'm facing creatively, but not consume in a binge type type of fashion. So sitting down and getting to work gives me ideas. It shows me where the problems are and it forces me to do a certain unit of work every day. That may be, even if it's just for 20 minutes, usually that 20 minutes will turn into two hours. And instead of consuming a show, catching up on a, you know, a season of whatever the latest show is on Netflix, I got a new prototype done that works where I can show it to people. And then eventually I can translate that into shows, into dollars, into revenue, and into serving the mission of Vitro. I think that's very interesting and a really important outlook on it because I understand what you're saying about the importance of creating that space and creating that time and scheduling. And I do agree with you that a lot of people kind of create in reverse. How have you found your ability to be able to expand the growth of your company has been greatly influenced by you making it a priority and scheduling that time? How many hours a week are you scheduling just for that? Are you scheduling by project or if you're like, this day is devoted to what I'm going to do for Vidro? So currently in clinic, I work in clinic from 8.30 in the morning until 6 p.m., sometimes later. And that's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I get out a little bit earlier um, every other Saturday as well until probably 3 p.m. So that's a big chunk of time. And you got to do all of the stuff. I have to write notes. I have to do tons of administrative stuff. But my preserve time is when I wake up. So I'll wake up at sometimes 4.30, 5 o'clock. And those are the best hours in the day because you're not getting any emails. You're not being interrupted by anybody. You're not getting any phone calls. So from 5 o'clock to about 7 o'clock, that's two hours of uninterrupted time where I can come up with a brand new product line or actually make a prototype. And so the mornings, whether or not I'm doing dental work, professional work, the job, I still have my freshest hours of the day right when I wake up dedicated to my craft. And then um, that allows me to get the employees working during the day. So I'm up doing this work. They have tasks for the day. They do the tasks while I'm at, at my job. And then by the time I'm done with my job, then they're done with their work day. We can get together figure out what we need to change, what we need to improve, reflect on the things that have been done. And so it's almost as though, you know, a kickstart the day, have committed employees, team members help us to translate these ideas into reality. And then we reconvene at the end of the day. It's almost as though there's three minds who are working on the project instead of just me. 
despite having this other career, you're still able to maximize the day and it's still a full day's worth of work towards vitro. So it's not suffering. So you just found a way to work smarter, not harder. And then Mondays and Tuesdays, they are stained glass from sunup to sundown. You know, the, the whole notion of nine to five when you're doing your own thing disappears. Like it, it goes from, and, and the, the beauty of it is it's not a job. Like I never, ever do I feel like I need to look at the clock and say, oh my God, when is this going to end? I can't wait for this to be over. I got to get out of here. No, like I get lost in it. Like I'll realize, oh my God, like the, the sun went down. Oh, wow. Um, maybe I should go and, you know, take a break because I've been at it for all of this time. I, I didn't realize that you know, it's, it's bedtime already. Wow. I need to get to bed. It, it's such a, it's such a joy that it's a pleasure to sit down and do the work. My goal has been finding other people who are just as passionate about it. People who randomly, like I, there's a guy who works with me right now, his name's Tony. And the beauty of it is Tony comes up with ideas. He'll, he'll text me, It'll be 11 p.m. Hey, Jason, like, what do you think about this new idea? Uh, I know that you have the, the map series and the thought crime series. Oh, I came up with the perfect solution. I came up with the perfect design. What do you think about this? I'm going to email it to you. Let me know. And finding people who are just as generative, who are just as passionate about it, makes it fun. It, it doesn't feel like drudgery. Like, have you ever had a job where you just are like, what am I doing with my life? Like looking at the clock all of the time, waiting for the weekend, waiting for vacation. That mindset is gone. That mindset does not exist with this. So it, it really is fun. It, it, it's play. The, some people spend their time watching Netflix and there's all kinds of great content out there. This is my Netflix. <laughs> but I also heard you say something else. I don't know if you meant to say it directly or indirectly, but really with the employees, because you're drawing in people who are passionate about the art form, it really feels like you're building your own sense of community within your organization. That cultural structure of having like-minded people is really important to you. I think it's it's paramount. That's one of the reasons why I love teaching the workshops. So I used to be a freshman proctor. It's sort of like a resident assistant at Harvard College. And each year I would get 30 or 32 new students who I would work with over the course of the year to help them transition into college life, to help them really connect their coursework to their interests. That was how I saw my job. And one of the things that I started doing was teaching the stained glass class to the students as a way for them to really get to know one another from the first day and then to kind of establish a bond with them creatively through art. A side effect of that was I learned the importance of being a good teacher. You know, dentistry is one of those fields where you kind of learn it, you, you learn a little bit of it from the book, but even more you learn from great mentors who take the time to show you what you may be doing wrong or show you a technique that may save you time or may 
work better for the patient or may work better financially for somebody. And so spending the time teaching people the joy of stained glass sparks something in them. And if somebody is genuinely interested in it, they can't help but contribute. In the United States, there's a the Department of Labor said that 70% of people are either dissatisfied or strongly dissatisfied with their work. Think about that. 70% strongly dissatisfied or dissatisfied with their work. So a lot of people are out there miserable doing things that they really don't want to do. Teaching, I found, helps me to unlock that spirit in the people who are working with me so that they can find a nexus between the art and their interests. So Nancy is another person who's been working with me and what she does is airbrushing. So a lot of the graffiti that we do in stained glass, it, it uses paint and airbrushing. So if I can find a way to connect airbrushing, which is Nancy's passion to the stained glass, um, it'll make the stained glass stronger because she will be thinking in the back of her mind when she's daydreaming, when her mind is quiet, oh my God, how can we, how can we paint the universe on a piece of glass and etch stars into there so that we can get this really unique piece of stained glass that nobody's seen before? Or which type of paint should we use to get a really, really great effect for the graffiti glass series? Because Nancy is an airbrush artist and she works with paint, why not leverage her strength? Why, why would I have her cutting glass when she could be focused on the painting? Tony, on the other hand, he is an ex-carpenter. So he knows how to work with tools, to work with numbers, and to work with his hands. So why would I have him paint? Instead, I can leverage his, his skill set in wood and his skill set in machinery so that he can be maximized. And so Vitro, I've tried to connect people to their interests. And by doing that, I find that I get people who are excited, who are dedicated, and that makes it better for everybody on the team. Yeah, what I also hear you saying, just being a consultant, what I know to be true is that coaching is a big part of people loving the work that they do. So people want to be coached and trained to make sure they're meeting the objectives properly, but they also want that reinforcement that you see them and that what they're bringing to the table is valuable. So by aligning people with their strengths, you're really saying to them that the work that you do is valuable and I'm going to allow you to give your best every day when you come in. I've had all kinds of jobs, probably 14, 15 jobs. And the times when I felt most valued were those moments where people were like, huh, that's an interesting idea. Let's look into that. As opposed to other jobs where it wasn't so good, I would bring up an idea or I would explain something that I had noticed and people would say stuff like, you know, who do you think you are? Let me do the thinking. You sit down and do the work. And immediately that shuts down all creativity because people are like, oh, well, I'm not valued here. I guess I'll just show up for a paycheck. And so even if I know that the idea is terrible, I will entertain it and we will engage in a generative conversation where that idea that may not have been that good 
on the first run actually turns into something viable, something that, huh, maybe we could actually use this. And so getting into the generative space where you take somebody's idea, like if if somebody out of the infinite things that somebody can say, if they're going to sit down and risk saying to you what's on their mind, it's important to take it seriously. Yes. It's important to hear them out and to dig deeper to see what the root of what they're saying is. Because I'd have to say 50 to 60% of the innovations that we have in our portraits, in our graffiti, in our maps, in our flags, all of these things came from random ideas that somebody said in passing. We had a very challenging contract where we needed to make nine mosaics. Each mosaic had about a hundred pieces on it. And each time you put the template onto the glass and draw it out with marker, the grinder washes away the marker. So people were spending double, triple the time trying to, trying to mark exactly what area of the glass needed to be ground down with the machine. Nancy, she came up with this brilliant idea. She was like, why don't you just Put the sticker on there, put the template on there, put a thin layer of spray paint on there, let it dry, take the sticker off, and you got the you got the template on there permanently, and you're gonna be grinding off the area that has the the excess glass, so it's gonna save you all kinds of time. It's not gonna wash away. So we created an innovation board so that any new idea that Tony, that Nancy, that Miguel, that Mike came up with, we put it on the wall. And so it's like, how are we going to work this new idea that Nancy came up with into our workflow? And I found that by doing that, by validating the ideas that people have, we become a stronger team. No, that's really important. I'm a big proponent of conscious leadership and really helping people not only work to their strength, but part of being a conscious leader is really recognizing that. Not everything that someone brings to the table is a threat to you or your authority. You can't grow without being open to being questioned and you can't grow your organization either without innovation. And I think in a lot of ways in the traditional business format, why they have a lot of major problems that become stonewall and they would have to hire someone like me to help them fix it is because they weren't open to listening to their employees. Somebody along the chain in middle management or upper management felt that their authority was being questioned or threatened, but they were comfortable with paying someone for an expertise because it appeared as a service where maybe some of that innovation already existed in-house. I see that all of the time. The innovation really is there. And I I think that Humility is a huge, huge cornerstone of being able to run a good organization. And I still have a long way to go. But what I've seen is I've had managers, bosses in the past who wanted to keep me through coercive actions. Oh, you're not going to succeed anywhere else. Where else are you going to be able to go if you're not working here? You know, just all kinds of things that were intended to scare me into staying or coercing me into staying. And so I found that when you just let people be 
and treat them as the free individuals that they are, it forces you to create an environment that is conducive to them wanting to be there. So making sure that they get paid on time, making sure that their ideas are validated, making sure that they're working on stuff they actually care about, making sure that it's a cohesive team where we have actually have fun, where you look forward to going there. So you've talked a lot about how you structure your workday, but how do you also bring this balance? Like when is your time for rest? What forms of rest do you take? How do you bring wellness into your day? Balance. So there, there is no balance if you're doing your own thing. Like if, if you... If you're expecting to do your own thing with balance, then you're not going to be effective. But the things that I do do, I, I have this mantra that I learned from a guy on a podcast named Aubrey Walker. And he said, you need to practice relentless self-care. So I'm very conscious of the food that I eat to make sure that I'm eating stuff that makes me feel well stuff that isn't going to weigh me down. I cut out dairy from my diet. My skin is a lot more clear now that I don't have dairy. I I don't feel lethargic because of the effect that it had on me. Relentless self-care, exercise. Pretty much almost every day, I spend time exercising. So in Boston, there is a 24-hour Planet Fitness, and it's only $10 a month. And it's, it's a five-minute drive for me to get there. So I have no excuse not to exercise. I can hop in the car. It'll take me five minutes, spend 20 minutes there, five minutes back. Instead of watching a show, I can exercise, and I'm going to feel powerful. I feel powerful after I exercise. I feel like my mind is centered. And then I will spend a little bit of time reading and reflecting. I can't emphasize how important it is to read widely to come up with new ideas. You know, people who do basic research, so scientific research, you you never know how that innovation is going to impact your work, how it's going to impact your field, how it's going to impact science or the world. And it's the same thing with, with reading. You know, I will read just looking at my studio right now, I remember reading about laser cutters. And, you know, this was maybe eight years ago. Never in a million years did I think that I would actually have my own laser cutter in here. There's a place called the Fab Lab in Boston in the South End, and they allow you to use all of their machinery on Thursday afternoon. So you can go in there, you can use vinyl cutter, laser cutter, their saws, their drill presses. They have dozens and dozens of tools and they'll show you how to use them. And I went in there and I was like, oh my God, I remember reading about these laser cutters, but I had never seen one before. Here is one. Oh my God, look at all of the stuff that you can do. Because of that fab lab, I was able to build in efficiencies where I could shave off 90% of the production time for some of my pieces and make it so that, hey, this can actually be affordable to everyday people. If I hadn't read about these topics, just generally reading like reading widely about my specific field, stained glass, but then in mosaics, materials, innovation, and not focusing on mainstream news, finding sources of 
new insight that will have unexpected impacts in unexpected ways at unexpected times in the future. So carving out a little bit of time makes it possible to do that. And if I have to cut out a show or cut out something to make that time possible, that's what I have to do. So relentless self-care, taking care of my body, exercising, eating well, maintaining my sanity by not being around toxic people. And I I think this is underemphasized. They say you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So imagine if you're coming up with something new and everybody is telling you why this isn't going to work, why you're going to fail, why you shouldn't do this, why you should take a more safe path. If, If I didn't have parents who encouraged my weird yet crazy ideas, I never would have pursued dentistry. I never would have gotten into stained glass. I never would have read widely. I never would have taken the risk to translate my ideas into reality. So surrounding myself with people who have a vision, who can see the possibilities, I think is fundamental. Well, part of the reason why I also asked the question is because we've been friends for many years. And I know you were one of the first people to really encourage me to take a look at my circle and incorporate wellness. I remember when you first brought up meditation to me. I don't know what I said, but I'm sure I told you nicely I wasn't interested, (laughs) 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 to say the least. And you took it in stride because I was like, oh, he's going to bring this back up again. (laughs) You are relentless (laughs) in your pursuit of people understanding the importance of what you're saying. So I was like, okay, this is going to be a sticking point. But <laughs> I, but for me, it was it's really beneficial. It's really changed and shaped the way I see myself and the way I live my life. I think part of the reason that we have been friends for so long is that we encourage each other to grow. I think that's invaluable when you think about the people around you. Most of my friends are not directly around me every single day, but... I think that really building a core group of people who aren't afraid to tell you the truth, but also encourage you to be your best self is so important. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I have this series called Thought Crimes. It's basically inspired by the book 1984 and the movie They Live. And it's it's all about anti-propaganda. That's probably the best way to describe it. And one of the one of the statements in the art is you can handle the truth. And so it's so much better to be uncomfortable with the truth than constantly living in fantasy world. I love the fact that the people who are around me, my parents, my friends, my coworkers, We've all gotten to the point where they'll say, Jason, I don't think this is going to work. Or Jason, I think you should reconsider this thing because here's something that I'm noticing that you're doing that you should really pay attention to. And even though it hurts and it, it feels like, oh, my God, maybe I should react and maybe I should challenge what they're saying. I find the strength within me to say, "Okay, tell me a little bit more. Tell me more. And sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're on to some things. Sometimes they have some insight that I never would have picked up on. 
And so by combining, being open to people's ideas and feedback without resistance is invaluable. Pairing that with reflection, there's a book called Awareness, Perils and Opportunities in Reality by Anthony DeMello. I highly recommend that book. It it really forces people, it forced me to understand the value of awareness, to really think about how we see ourselves, how the world sees ourselves, and what that means about our pathway through this very, very short journey of life. And so I agree. Having those people around you who are going to tell you the truth, there's not a dollar amount that you can put on it. So we've talked at length about you kind of going against the norm and creating your own career, and you've kind of given some advice. What would be some other pairs of advice that you think are important for those people to know who want to go against the norm? On this podcast, we call it a bohemian journey, simply meaning that you have the freedom to choose whatever you want to do. So what would you say would be the cornerstones that would help someone else have the courage or just advise them as they go along that journey? I'd have to say I had the distinct pleasure of being an academic advisor for freshmen for six years, probably 300 plus students whom I advised formally and informally. And these students would come in and say, Jason, I want to enroll in math 55 so that I could become an econ concentrator or econ major so that I can focus on econometrics so I can get a job at JP Morgan so that I can work for the Federal Reserve so I can become a senator so I can be the president of the United States. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you even like math? Do you like econ? But I, I had so many students who were living their parents' dreams. And so the first thing I would say to people is, be okay with saying, I don't know. The students whom I had the most impact with were the ones who were able to say, I actually don't know what I want to do. And I'm like, great, great. It's, it's so good that you're admitting that. So let's do this. Let's collect the dots before connecting them. So I would tell them the limitation that you have right now is you don't know what you don't know. There are fields that are out there that are emerging that you have never heard of before. There are fields that you think you know a lot about, but you have a media television driven understanding of what that field is. Like let's say medicine, for example, like a lot of people don't really know what it is that they're starting to pursue and will do it blindly. So the thing that I would tell the students is if you have an inkling of an interest, then develop something called the 50 list. The 50 list is 50 people who you're going to meet, who you're going to go and you're going to cold call them. You're going to cold email them and you're going to say, hey, Mr. or Miss So-and-so, I came across your work and it seems like you're doing some really interesting things at your company, in your organization, in your department. I'd love to spend 20 minutes talking to you so I can get to know a little bit more about what it is that you're doing because I'm curious about it. And I think I may be interested in it. 70% of the time, the people are going to say, yeah, how's Friday? How's Friday at 4 p.m.? We'll go and get a coffee at at Starbucks and 
and you can ask me any questions that you want. What ends up happening with those students who actually took me up on my challenge? They came across mentors, across opportunities, across fields that they didn't even know existed. And so by doing that deliberately, carving out time to understand the landscape, you get a stronger idea of actually what's out there. And those students were then able to make decisions based off of concrete information instead of speculation. They, they were able to foster unexpected mentors who would say, oh, my God, you know, Chris, Chris was really, really interested in this thing. We, we had met maybe a month ago. Here's this new opportunity. Who am I going to send it to? I'm going to send it to Chris before I send it out to all these other people who have lukewarm interests in this. Huh. I think Chris will be the good person to start with. And so it's a way to build an informal network while exploring the land's career landscape and to be open. You know, a lot of people don't know what they don't know. So fostering that understanding is a good starting point. I'd say the next thing is, like I said before, to be very comfortable possibly being different. If you start to understand the world and the career landscape from a different perspective, you may start to see things that other people don't see. I remember when I decided I was going to pursue dentistry, I happened to work at a clinic in Baltimore called Chase Brexton. And I was in a post-bac pre-med program. Everybody was geared towards medicine and I was too, but there happened to be a dental department there. And I was like, oh, I shadowed the internist. I shadowed the radiation oncologist. I shadowed the primary care physician, all these people, but I didn't shadow the dentist. Huh? okay, I'm going to spend some time with Dr. Brooks. I'm going to email him and see if he'll allow me to come down on a Tuesday when I next have some free time. I still remember his name, Brooks Woodward. He said, yeah, come on in. You can spend the afternoon here. I'll let you sit here while I work with my patients. And as I sat there, I realized, oh my God, this fits in with what I'm interested in. I love using my hands. I love craftsmanship. I don't really like working with really, really sick people. I like working with well patients. I like, I like the workflow of dentistry. And it just kind of clicked in my mind. Had I not scheduled that time to, to spend that afternoon with Dr. Woodward, who knows where I'd be right now? I'd probably never have serendipitously come across dentistry, which I thoroughly enjoy doing. And so maximizing serendipity is how I phrase it. Being not just open to opportunities and possibilities, but forcibly and deliberately putting yourself in front of opportunities and possibilities will ensure that they become concrete, that they translate into new opportunities that you couldn't have planned. So that's what I would say the starting points are. Just to piggyback off that, I think you're really a master at that. <laughs> Thank Whenever you. you have an idea, you always find always find the right people. It's just effortless for you. So that's part of the reason why I did want to do this interview with you, because I think that that is an important mindset and framework that sometimes people miss out on. Just putting yourself out there will create opportunities you never imagined. I think the worst thing is 
a life of regret. So, you know, like I, I'm going to be honest, I have a lot of people in my extended family whose lives were cut short. And so it's like, wow, this person died at 45, 15, 52, you know, so there's not that much time. I don't want to regret how I spent my life and I don't want to waste it doing stuff that is not meant for me. And so there's this quote, I'm enjoying the sound of my feet walking away from things not meant for me. So I feel like I'm able to focus now because I took myself off of pathways that weren't intended for me. Like becoming a physician ended up not being for me, but I happened to find this other thing, dentistry, which fit in with my personality. It fit in with the type of life that I wanted to have. Same thing with stained glass. But it takes vulnerability and courage to first explore that the path that you may be on is, may not be the path that's intended, or there may be a, a branch, a fork in that road. Being open to those things, being vulnerable to them, and then courageously walking down those new paths that may not be paved, it takes a lot of courage. People will ridicule you. And sometimes it doesn't work out in the way that you expect it. Being comfortable with those things is necessary in order to create something new. And I had a mentor, Dr. Katz. I'll finish this statement with, with Dr. Katz. Dr. Katz worked at NYU in the dental department. And he was the first mentor that I ever had who approached mentorship in the way that I think mentors should approach it. Instead of saying, hey, Jason, I want you to become another version of me. I want you to become what I am. He said, you know, you're going to be here for a year. I don't know what it is that you want to do with your career. I don't know if you want to become a practicing clinical dentist or a specialist or a researcher, a dean, work in the product industry. I don't know what it is that you want to do, but whatever it is that you want to do, I will help you make that happen. And so that was the marker of a clear champion. And he put the ball in my court to begin thinking critically about what it is that I wanted to do. Well, I just have one last question for you before we end. And it kind of sums up everything that we've been talking about. What do you want your legacy personally to be? And what do you want the legacy of vitro to be? What do you want it to leave the community? In terms of a legacy, people can feel your impact when you're doing the right thing. When you're operating with integrity, people can feel that. When, when, when there are these moments where you can behave with integrity or you can bend the rules or you can just ignore the rules or you can actually be criminal. People are watching from the sidelines. They're, they're listening to how you talk to people. Like, like with my patients, pe- people, they understand where your heart is. And after getting to know you for a little bit, they can understand the root of your motivations, even if you think you're trying to be stealthy and trying to hide all of that. All, all of the little pieces of insight are cumulative and they add up. And people can get a gist. They're like, oh, this person is 
fundamentally good. This person is doing it for the right reasons, or this person is trying to screw me over. I find that legacy is the accumulation of all of the decisions that you make. So if you're doing the right thing for the right reasons, the legacy will speak for itself. Contrastingly, if you're doing the wrong things or you have the wrong motivations, people can feel that as well. And what you're doing isn't going to last and it's not going to have the impact. And so I, I don't really think that far down the line in terms of this. I, I, I'm not trying to quote unquote build an empire. That, that's not what my goal is. My goal is to enjoy what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis, make a small impact with the people that I'm working with, create some really beautiful art that, that's aesthetic and that catches people's eye, and, and have a really, really good life. And if, if that impact is felt you know, one degree or two degrees separated from me or three degrees away from me, that's, that's even better. But I think building a good legacy is simply the act of making the right decisions, doing things with passion and, and recognizing that the cumulative effect of all of our decisions shapes what our legacy will become. I would like to thank Jason Outlaw for joining us today. We've been friends for a long time, but something he said during our conversation really struck me. You have to be okay with being strange in the eyes of other people. This really speaks to the vulnerability needed to create a unique and boundless lifestyle. Yet, as Jason reminds us, people may not understand our choices, but our authenticity will speak volumes to them. If you would like to learn more about Jason Outlaw or Vitro Art, please visit their website at vitro.org forward slash art. Once again, that's vitro, V-I-T-R-A-U-X dot org forward slash art. Thank you for listening to this episode of the She Kippy Podcast. New episodes are available weekly on iTunes. So subscribe and leave a comment letting us know how you're enjoying the show. To learn more about this podcast and your host, CH, follow us on Instagram at SheKippy Podcast and online at SheKippyPodcast.com. Always as in parting, journey through work, life, and play the Bohemian way. <laughs>